Great to be here. If I haven't met you, my name's Pete Stacey. I'm the evening pastor here. As I said a moment ago, we're, we're not going through every single section of this in detail, but we're trying to, trying to read all the way through. So before we launch into Peter's speech tonight, let me just briefly bridge the gap so we know where we're up to. Uh, Jesus had told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so about 120 people are gathered and Peter immediately addresses the problem of replacing Judas. How does he do it? Well, he scans the scriptures to make sense of the present situation and then uses the scriptures to set a godly direction for the future. Exactly what he'd seen Jesus do. Uh, and it's a great model for us. Friends, there is nothing in life, big or small, that is outside the reach of God's word. We do well to keep God's uh, word uh, in our hearts and our minds, uh, especially in the decisions, the big decisions of life. Uh, so they work out this criteria for a placement for Judas and it rules out everyone except two candidates. Uh, and then they pray for God's direction. And for the last time in the history of God's people, they cast lots. Now, Proverbs 16 verse 3 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but the decision is from the Lord. And the lot fell to Matthias, and immediately he was added to the apostles. Kind of, yeah, God says it, that settles it. Lock in, into it in obedience. It's good, isn't it? It's good for us. Seek the scriptures, pray, and then lock on in obedience. Well, in today's reading, uh, the Holy Spirit comes. And he is God's guiding, leading, comforting, counselling, empowering presence in the life of the believer. No need to cast lots anymore. So as we come to God's word now, his spirit is with us to help us understand it. And let's pray that we'll do just that. Dear Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Please help us to understand and obey what you are saying to us here tonight. Amen. Well, as we arrive in chapter 2, verse 1 says it's the day of Pentecost. Now, this is a huge festival for the Jews, celebrating the first harvest of the season, rejoicing in God's abundant provision. After centuries of conflict, though, the Jewish people have been scattered all over the world, especially by the Babylonians and the Assyrians several hundred years earlier. And so many Jews had literally grown up speaking other languages in different parts of the world. And now they've made their annual pilgrimage and there they are gathered in great numbers celebrating in Jerusalem. Now, the population of Jerusalem, it would have swollen like, you know, Ballon of Byron Bay, a service paradise in the middle of summer. Just massive influx of people. But this festival, this year, would be like no other. The events recorded in chapter 2 of Acts usher in a new epoch in world history. Friends, it is hard to overstate what goes on in this passage. The believers are gathered in one place, about 120 of them, and suddenly they hear the sound of a violent wind. And they see what seem to be tongues of fire coming and resting on each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit of God. The wind speaks of mighty power. 
An unstoppable force. And the fire, when you look back in the Old Testament, fire reminds us of God's presence. Remember Moses and the burning bush? God leading his people in a pillar of fire and so on. It's exactly what John the Baptist said in Luke's first book. I baptise you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And just last week, we saw it's exactly what Jesus promised in Acts chapter 1 and verse 5. And the Spirit empowers them to speak, to speak. On this occasion, in many different languages that they've never learned before. In year seven, I tried to learn a bit of French. That was just a painful for the teacher, I think. <laughs> Bible college, I tried to learn a bit of Greek. And um, I did have a kind of running joke. I know a little Greek and a little Hebrew. Uh, the, the little Greek runs the grocery store and the little Hebrew runs the supermarket. I thought it was funny. <laughs> In verses 5 to 11, thank you to that one person who's laughing. Uh, you can come to my fire anytime. Um, in Luke, verses 5 to 11, Luke rattles off 16 different language groups. See the end of verse 11? We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own languages. This is an astonishing miracle. It's a momentary reversal of God's judgment after the Tower of Babel. Remember that? Where he confused their language because they tried to reach heaven apart from him. And here God graciously enables everyone to hear the good news about Jesus so they can reach heaven with God by putting their trust in Jesus. Many years ago, I, I preached at uh, Central Baptist Church in Sydney. It's a large Chinese congregation. And there were two interpreters relaying my words in Cantonese and Mandarin as I spoke. And they'd asked me beforehand, please don't speak too fast. And they were listening and they had headphones on. And they are literally interpreting as I was going. Um, I was at Bible college at the time. And I remember having a chat to John Chapman, uh, who was one of my lecturers. And of course, you tell him a story. He's always got a better story to come back with. And so he told me one time he was speaking over in, I think it was Japan. And same thing, you know, there's interpreters interpreting what he's saying. And if any of you have ever heard John Chapman speak, Chapo, he'd tell these long story jokes, big story and a punchline at the end. All he's going on and on, the interpreter's working overtime. And then he gets to the end with the punchline and the people, like, they just roared laughing. It's like, whoa, you know, even he was a bit surprised. And he tells a good joke. And afterwards he, he said to the interpreter, look, what, what was it about that particular joke? John's thinking some sort of cultural thing made it even funnier. The interpreter said, oh, look, I just couldn't keep up with you. I didn't know where you were going. So I said to the people, I think he's telling a joke. When I give you the signal, can you please just laugh? <laughs> But friends, that's not what's happening here. By the power of God's Holy Spirit, these 120 believers are speaking clearly in known languages. And this is not the angelic prayer language of tongues spoken about in 1 Corinthians 12 either. 
This is languages that people have grown up hearing in the family home. And now they're hearing and understanding. And see verse 12, they are, understatement, amazed. They're perplexed. It's an astonishing miracle. And so they say, what does this mean? What does this mean? Sadly, as is so often the case, when something wonderful is happening, some people just want to stand on the sidelines and crack jokes and scoff. I think it gives the, the whole account a real authenticity. But friends, can I say, please don't be one of those people. This is way too serious. And so in verse 14, people are asking, what does this mean? Peter stood up with the eleven. And I think Luke's put that in. There's a clear distinction being made right there between the apostles and the other believers in that group. And then Peter addressed the crowd. At a glance, just over those verses that were read, you can see that his approach is the same as chapter 1. He scans the scriptures to make sense of what is happening and to help people understand why it matters. Not just for their lives now, but for eternity. And I think we've got a lot to learn by how he begins. Note three things as he starts. Firstly, Peter is warm in his manner. Fellow Jews. He personally identifies himself with his listeners. Years later, he wrote to Christians scattered around the Roman Empire to always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. But he adds, do it with gentleness and respect. Too often I think we get defensive when people scoff or criticise or challenge what we hold so dearly in our hearts. And sometimes we distance ourselves from others, unbelievers, or we get impatient, even arrogant, when people just don't understand the concepts of the gospel. Friends, that's not the way of God's spirit. Let your conversations be full of grace. And thanks for praying those are very words in your prayers tonight, guys. Secondly, Peter doesn't ignore the scoffers. But he gives a polite and sensible answer. And I can just imagine him with a warm smile and a twinkle in his eye, kind of saying, they're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. I mean, most people in that culture wouldn't have had breakfast yet at, at that stage of the day. Uh, so he, he addresses that. But thirdly, he takes them straight to common ground. See, all of the Jews held that the Old Testament was God's holy scriptures. So Peter starts there in their comfort zone and points them to Jesus. I'll unpack that a bit more in just a sec. But let's recognise how we can learn from Peter's manner. He's warm. He identifies with those who are listening to him and he addresses objections clearly and politely. Then he moves to common ground with his listener and points people to Jesus. Perhaps you and I need to, to reflect and think, how can we do this better ourselves in our everyday conversations to help people make sense of all the joys and the heartaches of life with Jesus? 
Oh, let's look at Peter's speech. It really is fantastic. Uh, and as we do, let's consider what's going on here. I love it. That the Holy Spirit who inspired every word in the Bible is now indwelling Peter, guiding his thought processes to help him explain what's going on. And so the Spirit takes his thoughts to the book of Joel. It's so good. It's the perfect text because it not only explains the coming of the Holy Spirit that they can all clearly see, but it finishes with a message of salvation in the Lord. The very message they all need to hear. The last days in the opening line there is a period of time between the coming of the Holy Spirit and ending with the glorious and yet terrifying return of the Lord who alone can save us from the judgment of a holy God. Verse 21. It raises hopes, doesn't it? I've got it in yellow up there. It raises our hopes, but it also raises questions. Who is this Lord? And how will he save us? So from verse 22 onward, Peter points them clearly to Jesus. It's like he's saying, Look, put all the pieces of the jigsaw together and the picture is Jesus. He begins with their experience. Verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to you by God, to, uh, to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you uh, through him, as you yourselves know. You saw him, you heard him, probably met someone that was healed by him. Maybe you were healed by him yourself. Think about it. He says, now, what does this point to? What does this tell us about the identity of Jesus? And then it gets really personal. Verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on a cross. And folks, this has just happened seven weeks earlier. This is vivid in their memories. Some of that crowd would have personally been involved in exactly what happened that afternoon. They had cried for his blood along with the crowd. They wanted him dead. Verse 24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And perhaps some in the crowd were beginning to realise that their actions against Jesus revealed that they were really against God. What a terrifying position to find yourself in. Peter then shows them how the Old Testament scriptures point us to Jesus. Three times he quotes from the Old Testament to answer their question, what does this mean? Three times the Old Testament points to Jesus as the Messiah, the rescuer, who was sent to save them. Verse 21, the quote from Joel, it climaxes with the promise of salvation to all who call on his name. As the New Testament develops that idea, we probably use the words, who put their trust in Jesus. It, it means the same thing. In other words, Jesus is the Messiah who saves God's people. The second quote there uh, from the Psalms, it explains that Jesus' resurrection identifies him as the Holy One of God. Death is a powerful thing and people stay dead, but not Jesus. By the power of God, 
He's been raised to indestructible life. And then the third quote explains that Jesus' ascension proves he is Lord because he rules on heaven's throne with God the Father. And he sums all of this up in verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. It's quite a climax, isn't it? It's quite a summary. I want to swap the word Israel for Shell Harbour. Let's see how it sounds. Therefore, let all Shell Harbour be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. If you're like me, you probably want to squirm out of such a damning accusation. It's like that word in the first verse of Amazing Grace. It just jars in my heart and in my head. You know the word I'm talking about, don't you? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved her. Wretch like me. It's a, it's a bit heavy, isn't it? It's a bit strong. Well, friends, a wretch is a person who is condemned with no way out. Friends, before a pure and holy God, that is me. That is me. If I could be good enough for God, then why did Jesus die? Of course, none of us can be good enough for God. So in his mercy, God sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sin. It was his plan all along. We skimmed over it. But did you notice back in verse 23, those words, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. He knew it was coming all along. It was no accident. It was no victory for the Romans or for the Jews or even for the devil. It was God's plan so that we could be saved for eternal life. That's what Jesus' death on the cross for our sin is so amazing. It is such undeserved kindness, such grace. As someone put it, God's riches at Christ's expense. Well, the people listening to Peter realised their disastrous situation. In verse 37, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? You can sense the desperation in their voices. None of them had physically crucified Jesus. The Roman soldiers did that. Many of them had probably seen it and, and perhaps they did shout, you know, crucify him along with the crowd. But they recognised that it was their sin that put Jesus on the cross. They, by their rebellion against God, had crucified him. And so have we. Into our disastrous situation, Peter responds in verse 38, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for forgiveness of our, your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Friends, it was such a joy for me, and I've known so many for us of us uh, on Easter Sunday, to baptise three of our young people who have repented. They've, they've turned from sin and turned to Jesus and put their trust in him alone, calling on his name. I love that photo. Isn't it wonderful? I just like blow it up and put it on the wall somewhere. It's fantastic. And God's promise to them and to all who've put their trust in Christ is complete, eternal forgiveness of sin. Guilt is gone. Not only that, as well as that, the gift of God's living presence in our hearts by His Holy Spirit. And it wasn't just for one generation that heard it. But, verse 39, for their children, for all who are far off. That last bit's probably a reference to the Gentiles, not just the Jews, for everyone. And imagine what Jesus said in our key verse from last week, Acts 1.8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in, in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, that's where a lot of the Jews lived, but then to the ends of the earth. This is good news for all. Friends, if you have understood from today's passage that Jesus is the Messiah, the rescuer that God sent to pay for your sin by his death on the cross, then be assured God is calling you tonight. See that in verse 39. He's calling you to repent and to show that you belong to him and his people by being baptised. Can I say, if you're already a Christian but you've never been baptised, can I encourage you to to do it as an act of obedience to Jesus? Uh, And if you were baptised as a little baby but haven't been confirmed, uh, we've actually got a confirmation service coming up in September. It'd be a great thing to do. God is calling us today. But don't for a moment think that, well, if God wants me, he'll get me as though it doesn't matter how we respond to that call. See verse 40. With many other words, Peter warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. How do we save ourselves? By calling on the name of the Lord Jesus and putting our trust in him and him alone. And look at what happened. In God's wonderful mercy, he fulfilled the prophecies of Isaiah and Hosea and Micah who said there would be many who would turn to the Lord in the last days. Verse 41 says, About 3,000 were added to their number that day. Praise God. I I just pray, Lord, do it again in our day. Do it again. In this remaining section... From verse 42 to 47, we see how their lives are radically transformed. We've got a whole other message on that for another day. But I'm just going to ask Jude if you can come out and simply read these final verses to us and hear the, 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 the incredible life transformation that happened in these new believers as God indwelt them by his spirit and assured them of their life together with him forever. So we're reading from verse 42, chapter 2, 42 to verse 47. 
They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I wonder whether the Lord may add to our number tonight. If there is anyone here tonight and you know that you're not personally ready to meet a holy, pure, perfect God who's going to judge your life. Can I encourage you to come and talk to me? Talk to John. Talk to someone you know that knows Jesus. Don't let it wait. Let's pray. Loving Father, by your Holy Spirit, please lead us all to true repentance and faith that we may know the relief of sins forgiven and the joy and comfort of your Holy Spirit in our hearts.